I hope, my dear, said Mr. Bennet to his wife, as they were at breakfast the next morning, that you have ordered a good dinner today, because I have reason to expect an... Hi, I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is the Reading Jane Austen podcast. This week, we're doing chapters 13 to 18 of Pride and Prejudice. Have you got a one-sentence summary of these chapters? In this session, we're introduced to two new characters, Mr. Collins and Mr. Wickham, in three social settings, the Bennett family home, the Phillips Media in Meryton, and the ball at Netherfield, where Elizabeth nurtures her prejudice against Mr. Darcy, and he, in spite of his pride, asks her to dance. So how many ands did you have in there? I've got three. So I've lost without any doubt. (laughs) (laughs) So that's three ands. On the other hand, you've got the words pride and prejudice in there. So that would give you plus two points. So that leaves you at minus one. Minus one. Oh, right. (laughs) My sentence is, Mr. Bennett surprises the family by telling them about the imminent arrival of his cousin, Mr. Collins, who may turn them all out of the house when Mr. Bennett is dead. And the girls also make the acquaintance of the gentleman-like Mr. Wickham, who regales Lizzie with the story of his mistreatment by Darcy, but then doesn't turn up at the Netherfield Ball, at which Lizzie has to dance first with Mr. Collins and also Mr. Darcy, who surprises her so much by asking her that she accepts even though she is determined to hate him. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that, that deserves lots of, <laughs> lots of points. Well, I managed to have only two ands and three bits from Jane Austen. The bit about turning them out of the house, the bit about Wickham being gentlemanlike, and the bit about Lizzie being determined to hate Darcy. So that's minus two for the ands and plus three for the Austenisms, which is plus one. Right. So, on to talking about the chapters themselves. Did you want to start? Well, what I've been trying to do at the beginning of each of these is to see what this little section contributes to the general love-marriage theme that runs through the book. So, in the hope that we'll be able to work out at the end what Jane Austen's attitude to this whole topic was. And in this one, I think what is quite interesting, for the first time, she just she comes up with looking at what it means to be in love because she's talking about both Jane and Bingley being in love and she seems to assume that everyone knows what being in love is like. Not only do they know what being in love means, but they can pick it. So you've got people like Mrs Bennet and both the Lucases, they both seem to be assumed that Bingley and Jane are in love. And one starts to wonder, why didn't the Bingley sisters and Darcy notice it as soon as they did? Well, I think you, you mentioned that last time as well, but I think it's because they both... Darcy says at one point he'd seen Bingley in love before and he didn't think this was any different at first. Yes, I suppose that's it, yes. But it's quite interesting, though, is the, again, from the social point of view, how Jane Austen assumes that everybody sees these things. These things are very publicly performed mm. and no one has to question what being in love is. Anyone can notice, can see it and pick it up. Mm. One of the things that really strikes me about the opening of this section is that Mr. Bennett gives Mrs. Bennett zero notice that Mr. Collins is coming. He's known for four weeks and he replied to Mr. Collins two weeks ago, but it's only today that he says, and Mr. Collins is arriving today, I hope you've prepared a good dinner, which is really, even though she's not doing the cooking herself, she has to give the housekeeper instructions and make the plans and decide what's been bought. 
and a bit more notice might have been nice. Well, as she says, she can't get any fish. What's she going to do? Yeah. But, I mean, it's just, again, part of, the, of Jane Austen's description of what can go wrong when people are not suited to one another in a marriage. And it's part of the whole performance that the Bennets have worked out between them of how they carry on in these occasions. Mm. One of the things that struck me as I went through this, though, was how suddenly rounded Lydia becomes, how she, you know, she leaps out of the page. She's only 15 and she's pursuing these officers. And I think Jane Austen says at some point that, in fact, she'd always been a bouncing sort of girl, but when the officers came and she talked to them and they responded, she suddenly was overcome with confidence. Almost like she's discovered sex appeal, or men. Well, that she's got it, I think, more than anything mm. else, that she's always been a bossy girl who said what she thought, but suddenly here are these men responding to mm. her. And I do kind of wonder, why are they responding so positively? Because she's only 15. I know, well, that's the thing. I suppose if she says at some stage, but I'm the tallest. So perhaps she, perhaps she looks a lot more than 15. Perhaps she looks more like 17. And they're not very old, the officers. They're only in their early 20s. Mm. And they're not a particularly sensible lot anyway. (laughs) But then Lydia is also very young because of the other bit that comes up when they're playing, what's, what's the game called? I don't think it names the game, but I think it's speculation. Yes, but anyway, where she sort of talks about all the fish she's won and how she was tra- she was attracting all Wiccan's attention, but then she got engrossed in the game. Mm. And all the way home, all she talks about is what happened to her in the game. So she's really very young mm. in some ways. Another thing that uh, Mr Collins's letter made me think about, and I could be wrong on this, but do people think that the original version of First Impressions was actually written in the, the epistolatory style? Series of letters? That, I, mean, I think that's more Sense and Sensibility was called um, Eleanor and Marianne. I don't know of Pride and Prejudice, but I could be wrong on that. Because there are a lot of letters in it read out in full. Not Obviously not just Darcy's big letter, but Mr Collins' letter and indeed the note that Miss Bingley sent to Jane. Uh, uh, it, it has a lot of letters in it. It does sound like that. Yes, I'm probably wrong in thinking it's not there. There's this other fascinating thing. I think it's been stopped, but for a long time people used to call any sort of thank you letter a Collins. They would say, I have to write a Collins, when I wrote a Collins. And I came across a reference to that from a diary from 1984, I think. Admittedly, it was a fairly old man who said, (laughs) when I wrote a Collins. It's just as if they don't appeal to me as as funny as all that, but obviously they went down as high humour for quite a lot of the Jane Austen readers in the past. But the thing about that, I remember that being mentioned in Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern's book, Talking of Jane Austen. Yes. They they talked about writing a Collins, which surprised me because I'd never heard the term before. But one of them says that how she'd often referred her friends to the thank you letter that Mr. Collins writes. And then when she went back through the book to try and find it herself... That's the one letter by Mr. Collins that isn't included in the book. His first letter to Mr. Bennett is read out in full, and then later on, after Lydia's elopement, his letter is read out in full. But his thank you letter, we get told he sent it, but it's not actually included in the book. And we also get told, he says to somebody at some point, I will write you a... Th- oh, I think he says, I will write you a thank you letter Yeah, at some point. Yes, it's just an odd piece of, of folklore that's come out of the book. Mm. That surprises you if you've never heard it. Yeah. 
but still going in 1984, which mm. has staggered me. Yeah. Another thing that struck me, thinking about this more from the earlier chapters, is the amount of foreshadowing Jane Austen has done in the early part of this book. So we've had, you know, right early on, Charlotte's comment on marrying without knowing much about your partner, which Elizabeth says Charlotte would never do herself, but of course she does. Yes. And then also Charlotte's um, very perceptive comment about Jane's feelings not being obvious to everyone, which again, we learn later, is what happened, but we don't know that at the time. Then in the evening at Netherfield, where Bingley talks about leaving abruptly and how easily he could be talked into changing his mind by other people. Again, that's something that happens. Yes. Lastly, when Elizabeth has said to her mother, I believe, ma'am, I may safely promise you never to dance with Mr. Darcy. And she does. All these setting ups and foreshadowings, which I don't think happens so much in Jane Austen's other books. I can't think of any. Well, when you think about it, it's probably because she knew the book so well. She'd written it so long ago and she'd loved it ever since because she calls it my darling child at some point as she's rewriting it. Yeah. So it's probably that, you know, she doesn't mind giving hints when they're appropriate. Mm. Well, now, one of the things that these chapters have made me rather change my mind about is something to do with the title. I've always thought, yes, you can sort of say it's a book about pride, but what's this about prejudice? Elizabeth wasn't particularly prejudiced. And then we come to her meeting with Wickham and her immediately leaping on what Wickham says about how awful Darcy is and she's saying I'm justified I'm justified and then you get the idea of this prejudice which carries on at the Netherfield ball. Although she was prejudiced against him a bit from the start from the moment she overheard the comment about her not being handsome enough to tempt him. Yeah was that being prejudiced or she just disliking him? Well I suppose. (laughs) Well no one of the things that's always struck me about this section is the way Wickham manages to fool everybody into thinking he is so charming. And we've been told... I don't think he's fooling people to thinking he's charming because he is charming. He's fooling people into believing that he's hard done by No, into believing his interpretation. Yes, I suppose it's something like that. But we're told all the time that Elizabeth is so perceptive, she's so good at picking up on people and knowing what they're like and that she's committed herself to it. And there there turns up this absolutely charming young man and she believes everything he, he wants her to believe. He sort of sets out to please her and she falls for it. Yeah. I think possibly it's because we don't see much of his early dialogue. So the first time we get him in extensive dialogue is when he's telling the sad story of his life. But mm. what the narrator says is that their early conversation, though it was only on its being a wet night, made her feel that the commonest, dullest, most threadbare topic might be rendered interesting by the skill of the speaker. Yeah. So, But unfortunately, we don't get any of that. We get him telling the story of his life, which by that stage, he's already kind of hooked her in into believing everything yes. he says because he's so charming. Yes, but on the other hand, a bit away from that, you can tend to think, look, isn't he overdoing it a bit for <laughs> him? <laughs> But I, I think he's judging his audience because he starts it tentatively and then Elizabeth says, well, nobody here likes Darcy and then he goes a bit further and then Elizabeth gets all offended on his behalf and outraged at Mr Darcy and he's just, he's just pushing it as far as he can. Oh, but, well, yeah, but so he's very, very good at it. Mm. It's just that I just wonder if Jane Austen thought people could be as bad as that. 
as every sort of con person I've known, even if they're conning one person, one of their friends says, this isn't right, this isn't right. Well, Jane tries to say that a bit. Does she? And I think... Well, only, no, only in her Jane way that she doesn't disbelieve Wickham, she just also doesn't believe it can yes. be so bad. He's turning out to be the most fantastic con man ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but if he, if he can fool Elizabeth, he's sort of fooling all the people all of the time, pretty much. <laughs> Elizabeth says afterwards when she's talking to Jane that Wickham gave names, facts, everything mentioned without ceremony. And he didn't actually give that many names or indeed that many verifiable facts. No. Maybe again it was a sense of, because at this stage she's the only person he's told, a sense that he was confiding in her and that made her feel special. She's very attracted to him to start with and everything that, that he does to show she's special makes her more more attracted to him and more willing to believe him. Yes. yes. One thing I, I did notice was at the ball, even though Elizabeth arrives at the ball and she's looking around for Mr Wickham and he's not there and she's disappointed and she's angry with Mr Darcy, she is hyper-conscious of what Mr Darcy will be thinking. She's always looking at him to see how oh, he's yes. responding to what her mother says. and Yes, and in, in effect, she is really bothered by his despising of her family. She you knows she's very worried by that. So I was thinking as I was reading these chapters about what you've said earlier about how much we see inside Darcy's head and the Netherfield ball is the la- definitely the last place we get inside his head and it's only twice. So it's interesting that almost as Wickham appears, Darcy recedes but when it's in the moment when um, Wickham and Darcy first encounter each other it says that Mr Darcy was beginning to determine not to fix his eyes on Elizabeth when he first sees Wickham and so that's again we see a moment of him determined not to be attracted to Elizabeth but then at the ball we don't actually see what prompted him to go and ask Elizabeth to dance we don't see anything inside his head while they're dancing all we get is after they've danced when she's shown how much she believes Mr Wickham and doesn't believe Darcy Darcy knows who to blame for this because In his breast, there was a tolerably powerful feeling towards her, which soon procured her pardon and directed all his anger against another. And that's it. That, I think, is the last time in the book we see inside his head. From there on, it's all external or his letter. Yes, it is. Yes. Which is possibly partly a plot thing, because Jane Austen wants us to have the suspense of who's right. Is Wickham right? And so you've got a nice little bit of plot there as Wickham's first character is gradually peeled back. Hmm. Although the bit about the bit about him directing all his anger against another does no, I suppose it still doesn't really tell you that he's in the right and Wickham is a lying comment. No no, well I mean if you didn't know what was going to happen in the end, well goodness yeah. knows what you'd be thinking. <laughs> I can't I can't think back that far. Yeah. Another area of possible speculation is when Darcy and Wickham do first meet, um, it says both changed colour. One looked white, the other red. I'm guessing Darcy is the one who was white with anger and Wickham is the one who was red with maybe embarrassment. Embarrassment, yes. yes. Though it's kind of hard to believe Wickham feels embarrassment. But <laughs> Elizabeth and Darcy's dance at the ball is also quite interesting in the conversation they have because they're still... It's not just Elizabeth venting her feelings about Wickham, but there's that bit about her still trying to make out Darcy's character and saying she hears so many... So many contradictory accounts, she cannot make him out at all. Yeah. And then later she says, but if I do not take your likeness now, I may never have another opportunity. So again, it does seem like despite her attraction to Wickham, she's also saying so much and so loudly 
how much she dislikes Darcy and she's so conscious of his views of her family that he's still really big in her brain at the moment. No doubt she's justifying it to herself, though, by now I've got a really interesting character. I've got to understand this man, even though I don't like him, even though he's so proud. But in my persona, as the person who understands human nature, I've got to sort out Mr Darcy. Okay. I mean, this is just her justifying herself to herself for thinking about him. Mm. On the other hand, it may be... Jane Austen wants us to see her having the first inklings of attraction mm. to Darcy. So, did you have a favourite sentence from these chapters? Well, I tended to find it hard to pick out a sentence that was really my favourite here because it seems to be a section where Jane Austen isn't saying anything particularly witty. There was one sentence from Elizabeth, though, that carries some of this, this sort of Jane Austen wit. This is after Jane has just said that both Wickham and Darcy must have got things at odds and interested parties have misrepresented them. Have misrepresented them, yes. Very true indeed. And now, my dear Jane, what have you got to say on behalf of the interested people who have probably been concerned in the business? Do clear them too, or we shall be obliged to think ill of somebody. (laughs) What's your sentence? Well, I actually did find some amusing authorial comments, but I think my favourite, and it's one I'd never really noticed before, it's when the girls are walking into Meryton and it's talking about Kitty and Lydia. And it says, Their eyes were immediately wandering up in the street in quest of the officers, and nothing less than a very smart bonnet indeed or a really new muslin in a shop window could recall them. So the character we're going to talk about this time is Mr Collins. Reading it again, I'm convinced that my first copy of Pride and Prejudice had pictures of Mr Collins in it which have stuck in my head for far too long. They've got him as a sort of a little spidery, prissy-looking character. And yet, when Mr Collins is actually introduced by Jane Austen, we're given this picture of him. He was a tall, heavy-looking young man of five and twenty, much younger than I tended to assume. His air was grave and stately and his manners were very formal. But it's this large, sort of almost hulking young man is the surprise <laughs> to me for Mr Collins. Mm. So you have to sort of rethink him. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I said when we were talking about Mrs Bennet that she's more broadly drawn than a lot of the other characters. Mm. But Mr Collins is that again. He's even yes. much more. And... I remember in um, Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stearns talking of Jane Austen, which I think I mentioned earlier, well, one of them comments that Mr. Collins and Lady Catherine are like a pair of Toby jugs amongst Dresden, China. <laughs> yes. Um, and, yeah, they, they think that's fine. I do sometimes find it a little bit jarring how completely over the top he is. Yes. But this, this time round, actually, I'm not finding Mrs. Bennet so bad, possibly, though, because I've been listening to an audio book where the, the reader did Mrs. Bennet absolutely beautifully. <laughs> but still. One thing that struck me this time is he's only been at Rosings a very, very short time. I'd always assumed he hadn't been there for very long, but then I noticed this, this read-through. A... It says Lady Catherine had been graciously pleased to approve of both of the discourses which he had already had the honour of preaching before her. Does that mean he's only actually been there for a couple of weeks? I, I think there's another phrase that says he's only been there a couple of weeks. 
And so you, it's one of the things that one of the things that sort of makes you wonder a bit. The question sort of is, where did they meet? And you can sort of see why if they managed to meet, he could put himself over if he's this sort of large, serious young man, full of compliments for her. You could see it might appeal to her because, of course, this is the thing we have to remember, is that Lady Catherine had control of this living. She had the presentation of the living. It so had what a, does presentation of the living mean? The presentation of the living means that somebody is called the patron and sometime in the distant past their ancestors have probably paid for the, the clergyman's salary. So basically she had the total right if she liked this young man. As it turns out, you know, with another reference to Wickham, the same thing was supposed to happen to Wickham. And both of them are these young men of not very prosperous background who have been sent to a university and having done that, they're then eligible to be ordained as clergymen. They've done rather differently, obviously. Wickham had a great time at the university <laughs> and Mr Collins saw almost, you know, talked to almost nobody, just lived there. That, that's actually something that struck me as I was reading it. It says, he was not a sensible man and the deficiency of nature had been but little assisted by educational society, the greatest part of his life having been spent under the guidance of an illiterate and miserly father, which is what you were saying, quite a humble background. Well, and is it necessarily a humble background? Or is, I mean, after all, this is somebody a relation of the Bennets. True. It's not so much a humble background as that he just happened to be a, an illiterate and miserly yeah. <laughs> relation of the yeah. Bennets. But then it goes to say that though he belonged to one of the universities, he had merely kept the necessary terms without forming at it any useful acquaintance, which kind of seems to sidestep the issue of learning at university and talking about the benefit of attending a university is to develop useful acquaintance. Well, no, I think he probably didn't get a tutor that took much notice of him. He didn't get anyone to do much. He just lived there and and turned up and you know, lived at his college. Mm. And possibly there was no tutor there who ever saw much of him. But the other thing with him having only been at Rosings for a very short time, if he has in fact only preached there twice, and then Lady Catherine sends him off to spend two weeks with the Bennets... To find a wife, That yes. seems quite soon. <laughs> yes. And she, well, she seems to be wanting to turn him into the right sort of clergyman. Very quick smart. True. Actually, he may have been coming in preparation, but not actually taken up his duties because he's done bits and pieces to his house. Mm -hmm. He talks about all the improvements he's made to his house. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's another, I think, really funny authorial comment in relation to Mr Collins. Oh, yes. Where it talks about his plan to marry one of the Bennett girls. And yes. it says... This was his plan of amends, of atonement, for inheriting their father's estate. And he thought it an excellent one, full of eligibility and suitableness, and excessively generous and disinterested on his own part. Yes, yes, that is us, isn't it? Yes, yes, and that is Jane Austen being, being her sort of acerbic, her acerbic wit is there, yes. I think it's also worth pointing out that he's presented as a figure of fun, as a very exaggerated character. Yeah. And certainly Mr. Bennett and Elizabeth both find him amusing. Mr. Bennett delights in the fact that he's not at all a sensible man. Elizabeth and Jane also can see he's not a sensible man. But Mrs. Bennett seems quite impressed by him and Mrs. Phillips is most definitely impressed by him and wants to tell all her friends and relations about him. 
Yeah, but I think, well, partly, again, that sort of explains why he got the living anyway. He knows how to make himself sort of really appreciated by middle-aged women. He knows how to flatter them. Mm -hmm. And, well, he knows he's flattering Lady Catherine, but he thinks it's his job. Mm. He thinks it's his job to be complimentary to her, so he goes and sees Mrs Phillips and he's complimentary to her. He's also complimentary to Mrs Bennet. And he sort of charms the three of them. Mm. Okay. Whereas he certainly doesn't charm Elizabeth or Charlotte. So I guess one thing to wonder is he's not a sensible young man, as Jane asks and Mr Bennett confirms. But Charlotte, when she marries him, is a very sensible young woman and she will probably manage to retain some of the worst of his excesses, do you think? Oh, I think so, yes, yes. Well, she'll work out how to handle him. It'll be a marriage rather like the Bennets, where she's making the best of it mm. and up to a point keeping him under control. But I think the difference is we assume that with the Bennets' marriage, Mr Bennet married Mrs Bennet because of... Well, he was in love with her, yeah. yes. Well, he was terribly attracted to her. Yeah, whereas Charlotte has married Mr Collins knowing exactly what he is and having taken the decision to do it. So I don't think she's ever going to resort into ridicule the way Mr. Bennett oh, does. No, she it, will be different. Way. She will control their marriage. She will take interest in other areas such as her poultry and then in the future her children. But I think she will still help keep him gainfully employed, not making enemies, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, there's a hint. Well, there's more than a hint. If Charlotte hadn't come in, he would have moved from Elizabeth on to Mary. And I'm not sure that would have worked oh, very well. Mary. It would have been terrible for yeah. Mary. Yeah. Because he wouldn't have admired her, really. Mm. And she could, would have found it hard. So what I've decided to talk about for the historical background to this bit is we're sort of the very beginning of it, we're told that Mr Collins is the man who has, has the, of the Longbourn estate entailed to him. Now, what one has to understand in all this stuff about inheritance is that primogeniture, the handing on to the eldest son, though it was very customary, it was only custom, it was not law. Which is, of course, how we'll see Lady Catherine, her estate will go to her daughter because she doesn't believe in leaving them away from the female line. That's right, yes, and some people did and some people didn't. But the whole point was that what the law actually held at this particular date was that if a man died in testate, Half his property should go to his widow and the other half should be divided between his children. But the law also upheld the right of a person to leave the estate by will to whomever he pleased. So everything that's happened, somebody has decided it. And in fact, for sort of over a hundred years, or for about a hundred years now, you've had all these lawyers who are finding ways to make sure that the law never came into play that whoever had a property was able to leave it to whoever he wanted. And he want, and if he wanted to control that person, he could control them. And the way they did it was in terms of trusts. What they did was to set the property that they wanted to hold together, that they wanted to not move away from the family, was handed over and became the property of trustees. The trustees couldn't spend the money, but they looked after it. Usually it would be someone the family trusted and the lawyer. 
would be made trustees. They had total control of the property. The supposed owner couldn't sell it. He could mortgage it, perhaps, but he could no, he couldn't sell it. He couldn't leave it to whoever he wanted to. The trustees had control of it. And when he died, the trustees, who still owned the property, then handed over the income to whoever the original person had said in his will was to, was to understand it. So what probably happened with the Bennets was whoever this man was that left it to Mr Bennett had just left it saying, and if Mr Bennett doesn't have a son, if he doesn't have a son, I want it to go to the Collins family, who are my relations, and it could go through the mail there. So that was to go through the mail. It may not have been have to go on for very long. And so when it finished... The land was handed back to the inheritor. The trust didn't exist anymore? Yes. On the other hand, you could have one like this will I I saw, which was signed in 1818, supposed to last for a thousand years, which it didn't. But that was entirely in terms of who was eldest. So it went to his sons and then it went to his daughters. If it wasn't to go to his daughters, it was going to go to his sis. He only had sisters, so his sisters and to their children and their children for a thousand years. If the sisters didn't have any children, it was to go all the way back to his aunts, this man. And it did. In 1905, when the last of these other heirs died, they had to go all the way back to one of this original man's, to one of his aunts, and come all the way down to her descendant. And he thought of this was enough is enough and got it handed over to him. But in fact, that happened. It could be done. I thought I read somewhere that entails generally only ran two or three generations and that was how they were set up. But then typically what happened was to keep control before the son. So it was entailed on the son, but then by the time of his son, the entail would be finished, except that he would then, while his son was still a minor get the son to extend it another generation and he'd basically say, well, if you don't do this, then I won't give you an allowance. And that was how they kept the property in the family? Oh, well, it could be done like that, but I'm just sort of saying there are examples Mm. like this man who thought he could keep it going for a 1,000 years (laughs) and kept it going for a 100 in terms of the the people he'd noted. Mm. The picture I've got with the Bennets is probably, he was saying, if Mr Bennett doesn't have a son, it's to go to the Collinses. But it, he probably didn't go beyond Mr. Bennett's son. Well, it does say, it's, no, it says later in the book that, of course, they would have a son and then Mr. Bennett would join with the son in breaking off the entail so that the property, that money could go well, to Well, yes, daughters. once he's got a son, it's been left. The son is going to, to inherit. Really inherit. So he'll own it himself. It won't be in a trust anymore. Yes. So there's no problem. And then he'll make a deal with what money is to be given to the children. The silly thing is that the Bennets behaved so so foolishly because it wasn't everything that would go to Mr Collins. I mean, everything they'd spent their money on while they had it was theirs. When uh, Mr Collins came to ta- the Collinses came to take over, the Bennets would have swept up all their personal property, all their furniture, all their jewels, all their horses and carriages and whisk them away mm-hmm. to whatever pathetic little place they were going to live on on £160 a year. Because, of course, that, that £160 a year they have, that is Mrs Bennett's money and that's completely separate from the entail. 
Mrs. Bennet and probably Mrs. Phillips got 5,000 each from their father. And it was all capital. It had all been invested in the funds, which was the national debt. And they were getting 4, 4% a year. So Mrs. Bennet every year was getting £160 coming in. But when Mr. Bennet died, that was all they would have had. And she and the five girls would have had to go and live on £160 a year. Okay, but it does say at one point that with Mr. Collins, the hall, the dining room and all its furniture were examined and praised and his commendation of everything would have touched Mrs. Bennet's heart but for the mortifying supposition of his viewing it all as his own future property. But it wouldn't have been. So the hall and the dining room would have been, but the furniture wouldn't have been. Yes, yes. That was something that occurred to me. It, it, but, I mean, she wouldn't have known. True. Yeah, I've always thought it's a bit weird that you, know, you think when something is inherited in the male line, it's all to keep the surname the same. But, of course, Mr Collins has a different surname, so it's just it's not like you've gone back up the male line to find to then work your way down to Mr Collins. Just someone in Mr Bennett's father's or grandfather's generation has said... If there's no male heirs here, then it passes to this branch of the family, which was obviously in the female line at some some stage. I think people say it was to preserve the male line, but it was probably more to preserve the property. Mm -hmm. The idea was we've got this beautiful estate, it's been in the family for generations. What we want to make sure is that somebody doesn't come in and give this to his mistress and that to his stepson. And And divide the property into five small pieces for his five daughters. (laughs) Yes, yes, that sort of thing. The idea, more than anything, was to hold the property together. And sometimes they trusted the girls and sometimes they didn't. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they trusted the women's blood but not the women, as would have happened in the case of Mr Collins's, Mm -hmm. presumably. What Mr Bennett should have done was the moment he got married, start trying to save up whether he had a son or not so he had some money to give his daughters. Otherwise, he would have left it to the son Mm. to deprive all his aunties. (laughs) Well, no, but that's where it says um, he would have joined with the son in breaking off the entail. But that would have then meant that instead of having saved money all the time the children were young, his poor old son is going to have to... (laughs) (laughs) True. ..and possibly even cut up the estate into five little parcels. Mm. So talking about the pop culture adaptations, I'd like to start by just looking at how they treat Mr Collins since we were talking about him earlier and particularly talking about how he's, well, how the illustration in your book gave you one impression of him and how they do in fact treat that heavy looking man of about 25. One thing that's worth commenting on is that in the 1940 movie, he's not actually a clergyman, he's a librarian. Really? And the reason for that, I believe, is because the Hollywood production code um, back in those days, it was a voluntary code that that filmmakers chose to abide by. And one of the aspects of the code was not showing the clergy in a poor light. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a bit hard if you're going to do 19th century literature. Yes. Yes. So he's made a librarian. And he's, he's drawn very broadly. He's also drawn very broadly in the 1980 TV series but in that one in most of them he's too old he's never 25 yes but in the 1980 version he is quite a large man so he is he is quite solid looking although he seems closer to being Mr Bennett's contemporary than to being the girl's contemporary 
Yes. But he is treated as a figure of fun. He's probably, if anything, even more over the top in 1995. Again, he's a bit too old. He's not tall and chunky, but he's not skinny either, like the picture in your book. Mm. But he's very, very subservient. He's always slightly hunched over. Sort of Uriah um, Uriah Heapish. Yes. Rubbing rubbing his hands together. Yes, not quite. I'm speaking in a half whisper whenever he refers to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And, oh, and another funny thing they do in 1995 is his letter to Mr. Bennett. They start out by Mr. Bennett is reading the letter aloud and then it sort of cuts over to Mr. Collins doing voiceover and you see some shots of the church and Lady Catherine and her daughter coming out so you get faces to put to them. But then the letter continues on past what was in the book and he gives this very detailed description of how he plans to travel. He's going to use his own modest equipage for the first part of the journey and then he's going to do this and then he's going to do that. It's like it's like the railway timetable. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very funny, but it, again, it sets him up as a very over-the-top character and you have that again and again. He's very... So much of the dialogue from the book is given to him and he delivers it in this... Um, Uriah Heapish Uriah way. Heapish way. By contrast, when we were talking about Mrs. Bennett, how the 2005 movie occasionally treated her with an element of pathos, you kind of see the same thing with some of the other characters in the 2005 movie. So Mr. Collins has far less dialogue. He's probably still too old, but closer to the right age, but he's actually quite a small man. The actor is, uh, is very short. So you sort of see him as being the kind of person who's always being overlooked. And you have him trying to have a conversation with Lizzie at the ball, and she's simultaneously having a conversation with Jane about Wickham, so she's kind of ignoring everything he says. And you even have a moment where he's sort of looking quite forlorn at the ball. In the book, uh, he never yeah. notices. No. So that's actually something that I'd sort of forgotten, aside from Mrs. Bennett, the 2005 movie does. It does take some of these minor, particularly comic characters, and tries to show their people too. So you get this with Mr. Collins a little bit. You also get it with Mary, just a little bit. For a start, you see that Mary would have liked Mr. Collins to dance with her at the ball and is quite disappointed that he's not going to or not going to dance with her first. Oh, no, that was lovely. But but also, you still have Mr. Bennett pushing her away from the piano, but later on, you see her crying in Mr. Bennett's arms and him comforting her and she's saying, I've been practising all week. Yes. And it really uh, is... Um, oh, that's a sweet... I mean, it's a sweet idea. Yeah. It? It's, not, it's not something Jane Austen did, but then that's kind of a feature of the 2005 movie. It, a lot of it is not Pride and Prejudice, which I'm yes. going to talk about more, particularly when we talk about Darcy. But it's interesting, these different interpretations of Mr. Collins. Mm. Although one thing that gets featured frequently is references to Fordyce's sermons. All right. In the 1995 version, when Mr. Collins is talking to Elizabeth in the garden and she would rather be talking to Wickham, Jane comes rushing out and says, Mary needs your assistance with Fordyce's sermons. She has something she can't quite make out. (laughs) (laughs) And it's mentioned again in 2005. I forget the context. Now, another character possibly worth talking about in the interpretations is Wickham, because you were saying how he's such a con man and why doesn't Elizabeth see through him? Yes. And to be honest, most of the film adaptations have real difficulty in making it believable that Elizabeth doesn't see through him. So the film versions give him the con man aspect, do they? The, the film versions, he might have well have I am a con man tattooed on his forehead. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's... 
it's so hard to believe that Elizabeth would fall for him. And in many cases, he's not attractive enough either. In 1995, he's very much a sub-Darcy. He's, he's also dark like Darcy, but he's just not attractive and he's a little bit smarmy. Well, in, in fact, of course, it should be the opposite, that he should be charming without overdoing it, whereas Darcy is too withdrawn. Yeah. And Wickham is absolutely charming. He's lovely to people, but he doesn't overdo it. He's not like Mr Collins paying little compliments. Yeah. One of the things you don't get in the earlier miniseries versions, and I think you don't get it either in the 1940 movie, but you do get in the 2005 movie, and you do get in some of the modernisations as well, is you get a bit more dialogue between Wickham and Elizabeth. So the 2005 movie gives you this little scene in a draper's shop where he's just making jokes and being amusing with her before he's launched into I was so victimised by Mr Darcy. Oh, right. Um, and you're in the... In the Which is definitely in the subtext of the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not seen. So, And the other thing the 2005 film does is physically he's a very different type from the Darcy character. So he's, um, he's prettier. He's sort of like well, a... But he's a sort of more of a blonde, blue-eyed, whereas yeah. Darcy is dark-haired. And, yeah. yeah. Which is sort of... a contrast you expect to see between Darcy and uh, Bingley. Yeah. But he's more of a Bingley-looking type, is yeah. he? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wickham and Collins in the modernisations aren't typically a soldier and a clergyman. Yes. Mr Collins is often a businessman. In Lizzie Bennet Diaries, Ricky Collins has a start-up web video company with a venture capitalist being Mr Berg. And he's not looking for someone to get married to. He's looking for a business partner. And I think in Bride and Prejudice, he's an accountant. And Wickham in Bride and Prejudice is basically, he's just travelling the world. Right. He's, he's on a gap year that's extended for a long time. Yes. So he, he is, again, he's a little bit smarmy, but kind of charming. And in Lizzie Bennet Diaries, he's on the swim team. So the whole militia in Lizzie Bennet Diaries have become the visiting swim team. Oh, right. Um, which, you know, all the girls go crazy for. Well, that sounds absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he's he doesn't come across... I don't think anyone watching it will be convinced that he's not a con man. Yes. The ball. In the 1940 version, the ball is sort of more of a garden party than a ball. There is dancing, but most of it seems to be outdoors, and you have this amazingly silly... Well, I don't know where it came from scene where there's an archery set up and Darcy's showing Elizabeth how to fire at a target and then it becomes apparent that Elizabeth is actually a much better archer than he is. Oh, yeah. I don't know where that came from, but the other thing they do in that scene is they actually show Darcy and Elizabeth almost coming together because Elizabeth is being pursued by Mr Collins and she hides and Darcy directs Mr Collins in another direction and she comes and says thank you and they almost become friends and then he sees her family behaving badly and he withdraws from her again. Oh, right. So that's kind of strange. In the 1980 version, probably due to budgetary constraints, the ball at Netherfield is actually quite small. I counted it. There are only eight couples dancing. (laughs) Uh, Still, there would have been sort of more parents and friends there. In 1995, it's larger, and in 2005, it's very large indeed. I'm sure it's more than four and 20 families <laughs> in that version. And Darcy and Lizzie having their conversation while they're dancing. The impression I get reading the book, and I don't know a great deal about 19th century dancing, is most of their conversation is happening while they're standing in the line for the dance. They're not actually 
dancing, but in both 1994. Yeah, well, because after all, they're chatting away, and up comes Sir William Lucas. Yes. Obviously, they're standing, and he's passing through the line of couples. Yeah. And he stops there and chats to them. Whereas in both the 1995 and the 2005 version, they make it more dynamic, and so they're having this conversation in a very broken way as they come together and go apart and come together and oh. go apart. One thing in the 1995 version, I absolutely love the almost grump. Well, Darcy is actually looking quite grumpy during it. She's been trying to make conversation, and there's one moment where she said something and he hasn't responded, and they've sort of moved apart in the dance. You see her just go sort of, whew, and try to come up with something else to say before meeting him again. Yes. And then she talks about them being both taciturn. And Darcy says, this is no very striking resemblance of your own character, I am sure. And he's so funny, his delivery of that line. Oh, right. <laughs> because he's so grumpy as he says it. <laughs> but then in the 2005 version, again, they're dancing in and out and their conversation is broken up. But at a certain point, suddenly the camera has come in quite close to them and you can't see any of the other couples. My reaction was... Where's everybody else gone? Because it, even though the camera is close in, there's enough background that you can see there's no one else around them. And then right at the end, it pulls out and they're back in with everyone else. It's like magic. Yes. <laughs> but I think the intention there is to show that they've become so caught up in their conversation they've forgotten everyone else. Yes. Oh, but one weird thing with the 2005 version, I talked before about how the 2005 version chose a 1790s setting rather than an 1810 setting. Yes. I've actually been watching the movie, re-watching the movie bit by bit. So it was only when I got to the ball that I realised suddenly the costumes are just, they seem to be all over the place. Elizabeth is still wearing what looks like a 1790s style dress. It's got a, a thick sash at the waistline. Yes. Jane, on the other hand, and a whole bunch of the other women are suddenly in Empire Line dresses. Mrs. Bennet and the older women are in older style dresses, but that's, I guess, you know, you can yeah. kind of deal with it. And then Miss Bingley, her dress is like a 1960s evening dress. It's just got little straps, <laughs> and her hair is like an Audrey Hepburn hairstyle, maybe, whereas Elizabeth's hair is very much the, um, the Napoleonic hairstyle. Yes. Um, and the militia, Michael was so critical of the militia's uniforms because he said they've got different facings, like which would mean they're all from different regiments. <laughs> and... Wickham has, well, most of them, in fact, they have their hair tied in a ponytail at the nape of their neck. Yeah. Um, so that's much more 1790s than 1810s. So the costuming seems to be just all over the place in the ballroom scene in the 2005 version. In the book, Elizabeth says, has her family conspired? She doesn't think they could have exposed themselves more to, yes. to Mr. Darcy and the Bingleys, and she's yes. incredibly embarrassed. What you see is Mrs. Bennett talking very loudly so Darcy can overhear about her plans for Jane and Bingley. And you see Mary's poor performance, and then you see Mr. Bennett being a little bit, well, a, a little a bit, bit harsh, yeah, yeah, harsh in when he make, makes Mary stop playing. Yes. But you don't actually see anything much about Lydia and Kitty doing anything to embarrass Lizzie. Nothing specific that they're doing. Yes. Whereas in all of the movie versions, you see Lydia and Kitty actively doing things to embarrass them, rushing up, speaking loudly. In the 1995 version, Lydia is um, bouncing through the room, holding Wickham's sword above her head. Yeah. So it's interesting that all of these other versions feel that they also have to make Kitty and Lydia really, really out there in terms of being embarrassing as well. Yes. The other thing the 1995 version does is that Mr. Bennett doesn't just come at the end of Mary's second song and tell her to stop. He interrupts just as she starts the second song. 
Uh-huh. Which is just so rude and unpleasant. Yeah. In the 2005 film, the one where he stops her playing, but then she's crying later, He, um, you don't see much of her playing in that one. It also doesn't seem as bad as it did in some of the earlier versions. What do you mean? The, the playing? The or... playing. In, <laughs> not, not the interview. Yeah. In the 1995 version, I think they... Some of the things in the 95 version can be a bit over the top, but they're often over the top, but really really capturing the essence of what Jane Austen was presenting in a more subdued manner. Yes. So what happens in 1995 is that Mary stops playing, having been rudely interrupted by Mr. Bennett, and then Mrs. Hurst goes to the piano. And she plays, and I looked this up, it's the Turkish March, which is from Piano Sonata 11 by Mozart. And as she's playing, and she's obviously playing this um, this to show up Mary's poor, poor performance, but as she's playing, it gets louder and faster and it forms the background to Elizabeth looking around and seeing her mother talking loudly and vulgarly about Jane and Bingley. And she sees Lydia and Kitty bouncing through the room, being pursued by the officers. And it really captures, I think, this sense for Elizabeth of just being so embarrassed and just wanting the floor to open up and swallow her. And yes. the music just makes, you know, gets louder and faster and more dynamic. And it just makes it all much more high tension and high stress. Yes. And as sort of, it's presented far more subtly in the book, but I think it does kind of capture the sense yes. of what Lizzie must be feeling at that time. Yes, yes. But yes, Andrew Davis' screenplay is not always known for subtlety, which <laughs> we'll be talking about later. <laughs> had some listener feedback on the last episode. Joyce commented that she'd always thought Darcy and Bingley had met at a club, you know, like a gentleman's club, like White's, which seemed to me like a very real possibility that I hadn't thought of. Oh no, well that was the sort of one I had thought of. I'd thought of a whole series, like they could have met on the hunting field, they could have met at All Max, they could have met at a club. It was just that none of those places did I think they'd get really buddies enough for Darcy to get that hold over Bingley. Uh-huh. I felt it has to be something a bit more intimate and a bit further back. Okay. But Joyce, I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to think of it. <laughs> You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Ellen. And me, Harriet. Next time, we're going to be doing chapters 19 to 26 of Pride and Prejudice. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarise in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We'll be back next time.